Well, before we get started this morning, I want to ask uh, Jenny Keith to come up. Jenny, would you mind coming up here? Um, if you don't know Jenny, uh, Jenny started her college career this last semester and uh, was on scholarship, right, to play tennis. And uh, during the fall, she was in, and we'll stand up here. <laughs> this past fall, she was in an accident, which, praise the Lord, was not catastrophic. But it did create some problems in her vision that they've been working through the semester in and haven't completely resolved. But she's going to return back to school here in another week or two in hopes that they have resolved enough for her to fulfill that scholarship and play tennis where she's going to school. And so we just want to take some time just to pray for Jenny. As she heads back, it's, there's a lot of questions that are unanswered still. And so we want her to know that as a church family, we are with her and our prayers are with you. So if you, if you wouldn't mind, let me pray for Jenny. God, we are thankful that you uh, protected Jenny and her friend in this accident that occurred in the fall. Uh, we trust uh, that uh, your hand of provision was upon her. And even as she has made progress in the fall with some of the uh, effects of that accident, uh, we are thankful for that. But we do pray, Father, as we look forward to her returning to school, that you would help that vision continue to improve, that her eyesight, we pray, would become normal again, and that her love and playing tennis would be something that she could uh, participate in and be successful in as you intend. But Father, we just pray, most importantly, that she continues to trust in you, that she lays this at your feet and rests in your loving care and knows that she is in your hands. Protect her father as she returns to school. We're so thankful for her testimony. May your life continue to shine in her. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jenny. Well, this morning I, I showed up and uh, noticed that uh, Bruce Shubiaka, our youth pastor, was wearing essentially the same thing I'm wearing, and I thought... This is going to really help my coolness factor, right, <laughs> to be dressed like our youth pastor. But I'm fixing to destroy all that by telling you that I'm a big fan of PBS. <laughs> and one of my favorite shows on PBS is the Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> I know. That's some fellow fans. But I really enjoy this show because I like to see it when people bring this worthless piece of pottery that they bought at a garage sale for $5, only to find out it's some ancient Indian relic worth thousands of dollars, right? But the other side of that coin is equally as entertaining to me, and that's the person who comes in with the original Colt 45, you know? And they've held on to this thing for generation after generation, only to find out it had been made in Italy and had nothing to do with the original masterpiece. And when I'm watching this, I'm looking at these things, and, and from my perspective, they all look the same to me. I can't tell what's a, a masterpiece from what's, you know, a $5 garage sale item. Um, but these folks who are the appraisers, that's kind of the fun of the show for me. It's like a mystery being solved, right? They're coming in, and they're looking for these specific attributes that, that apply to the masterpiece. Well... In a similar way, over the next few weeks, we're going to do a little investigation of our own. We're going to take some time to examine the masterpiece of God's church, people who are called by his name to worship him. 
And when we do that, we're going to look for some of those evidences of God's signature, right? Kind of like that appraiser does when he is examining that piece of art. But as we do that, I want to make sure that you understand that that these things that we will walk through together are not and should not be exclusive to Melanie Park Church, okay? These should be evidences of those of any person, of any group that gather in the name of Jesus Christ, Bible-believing people who are followers of Christ. The other thing I want you to know is that we're not, I'm going to give you four, okay? But these are not the only four. We're going to talk about worship. We're going to talk about truth. We're going to talk about community, and we're going to talk about mission. Now, I've chosen these four because I believe they are essential. I believe these are the key components. Kind of like when the appraiser looks at that piece of art, he knows if it's an original, there are certain things that he will find when he examines that artifact. Well, in the same way, I believe that these are the evidences that should exist within the church if, in fact, it is the church that God created, has his signature on it, if you will. These are the things that I think are are necessary. Because here's the reality. In our world today, there are no shortage of imitations. Those who claim to be the real thing. But what I want us to do today is to make sure that all the right pieces are included to ensure that this is, in fact, God's masterpiece, the church. My hope and my purpose in us doing this together is that, as much as anything, this will be a reminder Okay? These will be things that, you will, that will resonate with you because you know in looking at his word that this is true. And it will stir that within you. But my hope is in that reminding, it will also be a source of commitment. That as we hear these things together, as a church family, we will affirm with one another that yes, this is the ground that we stand on. These are the things that we're committed to. And we will recommit ourselves, if you will, to those things. So before we look at his word this morning, let's pray together. God, as we come to you this morning, we come as people dependent upon you, dependent upon your spirit to speak into our hearts, to help us understand the message that you've given us in your word. We are dependent upon life that is found only in you, hope that is found only in you. And so, Father, as we come together this morning, help us to look to you, to be our source and our strength and a very object of worship and adoration. We ask, Father, that this be glorifying to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, in our study of Second Peter this past fall, we bumped into a curious little verse in chapter 2 of Second of Peter where Peter is describing the qualities of of the false teachers that he was exposing. You may remember that verse in chapter 2, verse 14, when describing these false teachers, he says, they forsake the right way in order to go astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now, we talked about that together, and as a reminder, Balaam was a false prophet who was essentially hired by the king of Moab to curse the Israelites in the name of the God they serve. And Balaam had every intent of carrying out that curse, 
But as you may remember, on his way to fulfill that uh, act that he had been hired to do, the Lord interrupted him in a most unusual way. He rebuked him through the voice of his donkey and told him that is something that will not take place. And in fact, it did not. But one of the things that we find as we look at Scripture is that Balaam still did something that ended up hurting the people of God. He went and spoke to the king of Moab and said, I will not curse God's people, but I'll give you a little insight. If you will invite them to compromise, they might accept. Let them continue in in their method of worship, but, but invite them to experience your style as well. It's kind of that philosophy that says, if you can't beat them, ask them to join you. And interestingly, that's exactly what happened. You don't need to turn there, but let me tell you what happens in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. It says this. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to sacrifice with their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. You see, Balaam had given some advice to the king. The king took his advice, and an invitation was given. And unfortunately, Israel accepted that invitation, and they joined themselves to Baal. Now, why in the world would they do such a thing? What was so appealing about this new worship experience? Well, to answer that question, I think we have to have some understanding of of who this invented God, Baal, really is, right? We see him mentioned all throughout the Old Testament, and we know that there is a pervasive influence in his worship. As you look at it, he's unique in that he stands as among other ancient gods as one who is kind of an amalgamation, a a combination of several. As you look deeply, what you begin to see is that when migrating tribes came together and they all had these invented gods, very often Baal was the one that they all agreed to serve as a single deity. He was the god that appealed to the masses. But why is that? Why was Baal so popular? I believe his popularity had less to do with who he was as a God and more to do with how you gained his favor. He appealed to the masses because of the personal gratification required of his worship. For example, Prostitution was not only allowed, it was encouraged in the worship of Baal. Pleasing Baal in this way is what produced rain for the crops. And this rain is what produced an abundance of grapes, which produced wine, which continues the cycle. This was the God of having a good time. And that's why I believe he was so popular. He was invented, (laughs) by the depraved mind of a man. And we will always become that which we choose to worship. 
this is where we find Israel. The invitation was given. That invitation was accepted. And the corruption continued to evolve until we get to a place where Hosea, the prophet, steps onto the scene. By this time, the worship of Baal had been fairly ingrained into the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. I want us to look at that together. Turn to Hosea chapter 2. Hosea is one of the minor prophets to help you navigate your way there. Ezekiel, Daniel, and then Hosea. Turn to Hosea chapter 2, verse 5. It's pretty close to right smack dab in the middle of your Bible. Hosea chapter 2, verse 5. The prophet is speaking about the people of Israel, and this is what he has to say in verse 5 of chapter 2. It says, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Now go down to verse 8 where God responds. He says, for she does not know that it is that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil. And lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Now look at verse 13. And I will punish her for the days of the Baals. When she used the off to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and her jewelry. And follow her other lovers, if you will, so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. You see, God's people began to worship Baal. And in the process, they lost their heart of worship for God. They were driven by an experience, and in the process, they forgot about the Lord. Now, keep in mind, they continued to follow Yahweh, the God of Israel. But that part of their religious duty had become boring, kind of a ritual. And so Baal was simply added into the mix to bring new life to what had become a mindless routine. But turn over to chapter 6, verse 6 of Hosea, and let's look at what all this looks like from the perspective of God. This is what he says in chapter 6, verse 6. He says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, in the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. God says religious activity in the absence of obedience is meaningless. I desire humble service over great sermons. I desire faithful lives over singing lips. But the people of God made the mistake of, of looking at their circumstances instead of examining their heart. And as a result, since, since life was good and, and personally gratifying, they wrongly assumed that God must be pleased. They looked at their surroundings and mistook their own prosperity for God's favor. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. 
says, Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. You see, there was lots of spiritual activity going on. But their heart was far from God because experience took precedent over the person. Their driving motivation became personal gratification. Instead of pleasing God, worship became what was all about pleasing me. And it drew large crowds. Is this sounding familiar to anyone? Here's the reality. You and I live in an entertainment-driven society. And there are no shortage of worship experiences from which we have to choose. There are plenty of other lovers, if you will, that we too can give our affection to, that in some ways arouse that passion within us. Now, not unlike Baal, many of these have become culturally acceptable, and so we look at them and, and see them as fairly harmless. But here's the problem. Because the emotional ecstasy of these experiences is so addicting, we expect the church to duplicate these emotions in order to get our money's worth out of worship. We want the church to match what we have come to expect in our culture. And listen to me, that's the same invitation given to the Israelites. It still stands today. Now, let me give you just a quick example of what one of those might look like, okay? Listen to this, if you would, Chris. I was watching TV the other day. And this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. Well, you would think they were crazy if you didn't understand their culture and their religion. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols. And they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted. They danced. They, they made sacrifices to their idols. But they had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. You don't really relate, do you? Let's try it again. I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols, and they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted. They danced. They, they made sacrifices to their idols. They had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. Idol worship. It's not just about golden calves anymore. Now, that's something we find humorous. And maybe it's unfair to show something like that right in the middle of bowl season and <laughs> NFL playoffs. 
But my point is this. You and I are being offered a similar imitation as to what was given to the Israelites. And and here's what it is. Listen, don't miss this. The invitation being made to God's people is to compromise by requiring the worship of the church to achieve an entertainment value that brings the personal satisfaction we have come to expect from our culture. And when this happens, we dilute our worship into an emotional experience instead of a life of devotion. It's a form of entertainment instead of a life lived in humble adoration to the God we serve. I know this is happening because far and above, I mean by a long shot, the most common thing I hear from people who are looking for a new church or moving from one church to another is this. They say, you know, we really like going there because they just have great worship. That's the wrong perspective. Because worship is not an experience. It is an attitude of the heart that is evidenced in the life you live. That's worship. That's what worship is. It's obedience, not sacrifice. It's service, not sermons. It's the gospel you proclaim, not the song you sing. Your life is worship. We need to understand that true worship is ultimately found in how we live our life in obedience to the God we serve so much more than than the songs we might happen to sing on a Sunday morning. Worship should ultimately be that which is most pleasing to God, not us. Now, what we do on Sunday morning is important. And in fact, it is purposeful. And I know firsthand the prayerful preparation that Mark and the music team puts in to what we do on Sunday morning. The songs are chosen purposefully so that the words reflect the heart of what we want to understand about God as we open His Word. And I believe Scripture gives us a very clear direction as well as to what our heart of worship should be in a number of places, but one of the ones that I think speaks most clearly is one we find in the New Testament. It is an event that John records in his Gospel when he speaks about an encounter between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at a very common watering hole called Jacob's Well. But in an effort to help you capture the heart of this message, I want to ask you to put yourself in this story, okay? It's a very familiar story, but I'm going to help you put yourself in the place of that Samaritan woman. So use kind of your sanctified imagination, if you will, as we go through this together. Instead of Jacob's well, let's say that you're at a popular public place like the mall. Now, already we know this is a made-up story because that's the last place I would want to be. But let's just say for the, for the sake of our story, that's where we're at. Okay? Let's say you've been shopping all day and you're pretty tired. Your, your feet are getting sore and so you really need a cold drink. If you're like me, you take a water bottle around with you everywhere you go. 
and you're looking for a water fountain where you can get a good cold drink of water, fill that bottle up, and, and you're good to go. As you do, you notice a water fountain in the distance, but there's somebody standing next to that water fountain, but they motion to you to so go ahead. They're not getting a drink, so you do so. You go over to that fountain. You begin to fill up your water bottle, and this strange man looks at you and says, Can I have a drink? But you step away from the water fountain and allow him access, and he says, No, can I have a drink from your bottle? <laughs> You're thinking, This is weird, right? Not only is this culturally unacceptable, it's just gross, right? So you tell the strange man, sir, I don't know how you were raised, but we don't do those kind of things around here. He doesn't seem to be offended by what you're saying, but he says this. He says, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. You kind of look around because you're thinking, okay, this doesn't seem right. Am I on candid camera or funniest home videos videos or something? And, And so you begin to think through things, but you're intrigued. So you tell the man, you know, it's going to be really hard for you to give me a drink because you don't have anything to put water in, right? So if you have some secret water from some secret source, then I'm interested, but you know something that I don't know. And and in fact, who are you? (laughs) Are you somebody special? He pauses and says, let me put it this way. Water fountains exist because people are always thirsty. And you and I both know that it's just a matter of time before you come back because you're going to need another drink. And if you think about it, that's really the story of your life, isn't it? Always seeking for something to satisfy the longing of your thirsty soul, but you always come up empty. You see, you're looking for circumstances to change your heart. And I want you to know that I have something to offer you that will change your heart and absolutely transform your circumstances, both now and for eternity. If you want your life to look different, you and I both know that something's got to change. Actually, you do know that. You've thought about it a thousand times. It's like the definition of insanity, right? Trying to do the same thing over and over and expect a different result. That's the story of your life. The stranger can deliver on his promise, you know in your heart, that's what you've been looking for. So you tell him, sir, I I don't know who you are, but you seem like a nice man. In fact, you've paid more attention to me than my own family. And for that reason, you have my attention. And you're right. My life is not what it should be. I know I should be making better decisions. And I'm definitely interested in anything that makes my life easier. So if you'll let me go get my wife so that she can hear what you have to say as well, I'd like to know. He motions for you to go ahead, but as you take your first step, he says, now wait a second. Was that your wife, the woman you slept with, or those that you go to on the Internet? You stop dead in your tracks because this man knows your secrets. Somebody's probably set you up. And now... There's no more pretending. You've been caught, and your sin is exposed. You never really grew up in the church. You've been there before, and so that's the only answer that you could come up with. And 
you tell him, you say, I understand what you're saying, and we both know what's going on in my heart. Maybe that's what I need to do, is just get my life back on track. And, and, and I know I need to, to get back into church. And, and there's one on every street corner in this city. But, but there are a couple that I've heard about from my friends. And they say there's a great worship experience there. It kind of makes you feel better and lifts your spirits. Is that where I should go to get my life back on track? He looks at you and says, you've been there before. And you cannot worship that which you do not know. There's no church worship experience that will solve your problem. This is about who you worship, not how you worship. You need to know the truth. And that truth is what will set you free. Well... You tell the man, if you're talking about Jesus, I know that's what I need. And only if he were here to help me understand and walk me through this. He looks at you and says, that's why I'm here. Because that's who I am. That's who I am. Now sometime this week, go back to John chapter 4, verses 3 through 26. And read that very familiar story again and put yourself in the story. Because that's not just a story about the Samaritan woman. That's your story as well. And it's your story because Jesus is making that same offer to us. That he is the only one who can satisfy the longing of our heart. And that offer still stands for those we're thirsty and needing a drink. And I believe in that encounter that Jesus has with this woman. As, as we begin to read through that, he answers some of the very most important questions about a genuine heart of worship. And I'm going to just look at three of those that I believe came out from that encounter with Jesus. First of all, one of the things that I want you to notice is that the subject of worship could not even be introduced until the issue of sin had been dealt with. Did you notice that? Genuine worship is simply not possible when sin is allowed to reign. In fact, John, who wrote that gospel, then later writes a letter, and in that letter he says, if we say that we have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, we lie. And we don't practice the truth because genuine worship cannot exist in a life of unconfessed sin. Why? Because your life is your greatest act of worship. That's the idea behind Paul's very familiar words to the Romans. We have read this in here before. I know you've read it as well. And he tells him, he says, I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. You see, our sacrificial obedience, where we surrender our heart to the transforming work of Christ, that is, in fact, our greatest act of worship. In fact, until that happens... Worship cannot exist. 
Jesus is teaching us that a repentant heart is one of those distinguishing characteristics of genuine, authentic worship. Too often, I think we try to create that worship experience so that we can somehow connect to God. But really, it's our faithful walk that is that connection, and worship just flows out of that as a response. Which leads us to the second characteristic that Jesus speaks of when he says, you cannot worship that which you do not know. Now, in the context of our story, we know that Jesus is inviting the Samaritan woman to know him as Savior in whom she finds forgiveness. Now, now that she's been confronted with the the fact that she's dead in her sin, and that has been exposed, Jesus wants her to understand that he has come, that she might have life through faith in him. He introduces her to God's grace and forgiveness. He invites her to experience God's love and mercy. Her humble worship is the only right response to an accurate understanding of who Jesus is as her Savior. She can only worship that which she has come to know. Her adoration is a response to his love. And just as love deepens as our knowledge grows, so does our heart of worship. I think we would all agree that the the more we know someone we truly love, the more we grow to adore them. You guys just began a life together, didn't you, Kyle? What a beautiful thing that was. Terry and I will celebrate 20 years in a couple of months. What a beautiful thing that is. And I want you to know, that the more that I get to know my sweet wife, the deeper my love is for her. Now, I'll tell you that the day I stood on that altar with her, just like you guys, I meant every word I said. And I believe that there was love, but it is a drop in the bucket compared to what God has in store for you. It is a blessing that grows and strengthens over time. Because the more you get to know somebody, that you're truly devoted to, the deeper that love drives down. So that it becomes less about an emotion and more about a devotion. That's why it's impossible to experience genuine worship of God in the absence of a strong and growing relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot worship that which you do not know. Again, I think very often we try to create that worship experience in an effort to know God more. I think that's backwards. Worship is fundamentally not what we do in order to get connected with God. Instead, worship is the outcome of the experience of a life lived in fellowship with Him. And the experience of the fruit of that relationship as we abide in the vine. Genuine worship does not create the relationship. It is the outcome of that relationship. You see the difference? We can only worship that which we have come to know through the experience of an obedient and abiding walk with Christ. Which brings me to the final point. 
in that dialogue that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman, he tells her that true worship is worship that is done in spirit and in truth. Now, we could examine those very important words very closely, but I don't think it's complicated. In fact, I believe what Jesus says in that statement to that woman is very simply an echo of what God spoke through the prophet Hosea. The one who worships in spirit and truth is the same as the one who worships in loyal devotion and knowledge of God. It's a combination of what we know and how we live, and the two cannot be divorced. That's why I'm convinced through the testimony of Scripture that worship is not an experience. Worship is lived out in the loyal devotion and growing knowledge of an abiding walk with Christ. How you live your life is, in fact, your greatest act of worship. Now, I know a lot of you have probably heard about what I was talking about about this morning, maybe as soon as I started in on this topic of worship, you thought to yourself, oh great, he's going to talk about hymns and choruses. You notice I didn't do that. The reason is because I believe in doing so we are missing the point. Diluting worship down to the songs we sing reveals a very limited understanding of the command that God gives to his people. Jesus tells us that true worship flows out of a heart of repentance. It's a grateful heart that gives glory to God for the things that He has done. It is based on a a deep and abiding walk with Christ so that we speak out of that which we have come to know. Our experience of worship, if you want to call it that, flows out of our experience of our walk with Christ because how we live speaks of what we most adore. Our life should reflect the knowledge of God in whom we experience our walk with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I said that we're not going to talk about songs, but I want to finish with the song. (laughs) And the reason I do is because there's a very important story behind this very popular song. It's a song written by a man by the name of Matt Redman who has written a number of worship songs. If you know Matt, you know that he is a very talented musician and songwriter. And he is, in fact, the worship leader for the church where he attends. And I don't know this for sure. It'd probably be the case if I were there. But I bet there's a lot of people who go to that church because Matt Redman is leading worship, right? He's good. He's really good. But over time, what began to develop was an attitude of worshiping worship. So much so that the pastor came forward and thought that, you know, this worship experience is moving to an unhealthy level. And and in his words, he says, people were asking questions like, what did the worship experience do for you today? As if it meant to do something for us. And so he took a bold step, stood in front of his church and says, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to take a fast from worship. In fact, what he said is, I'm banning the band. (laughs) Those were his words, right? And he went on to teach and instruct his congregation. He says, here's what's going to happen. We're going to come together, but we're going to be quiet until somebody can speak praise to God based on the experience of having walked with him on the days that preceded this one. When you utter those words, that will be our song of praise. And and it was during this time that Matt Redman wrote this song. 
And it came from that heart. As he described what he believed was the heart of worship. What God taught him through that fast. Well, in a very small way, I want us to do that together this morning. As Mark comes forward with his team, I want to ask you to just bow your heads and be silent. And I want you to seek to go before the Lord with where your heart is. And pray that as we sing together, we sing with a true and genuine heart of worship that honors and glorifies him. So let's just take a couple of minutes and be silent, and then we'll sing together. Music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within, through the way things appear, you're looking into my It's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. King of endless world.
God, we are your people, called by your name for the purpose of living in a way that glorifies you, and that is our greatest act of worship. Father, as we leave here today, may that penetrate our heart to know that that is the heart of worship. May we encourage each other to love and good deeds even more as the day draws near. As your people, may our lives worship you. And draw others to do the same. Drink deeply this week, my friends, from that living water. The offer still stands. It's in his name that we pray. The name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.